We're living through not only one of the most turbulent periods in recent history, but also the decade that will decide humanity's future. Climate change is the defining issue of our time. We know beyond reasonable doubt what the science now tells us. Just as climate change is accelerating, so too must we. Summoning up a great sense of urgency, courage and shared endeavour than humankind has ever seen before. What can we do as citizens and society to unite and combat the climate crisis? And what role should our cities play? Hi and welcome to Moonshot City. I'm Juhi Sharif and I'm here with Preeti Ambani and together we're exploring the big questions around what makes a resilient and regenerative city. Today we're delighted to welcome our guest Sir Jonathan Porritt. I'm going to take a bit of time to share his background. People usually skim over this bit because, well as you'll see, there's a lot to share. Jonathan Porritt is an eminent writer, broadcaster and commentator on sustainable development. He's co-founder of Forum for the Future, now the UK's leading sustainable development charity, which has a presence in the US, India, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia. Forum also works with leading businesses here in NZ. So some of you may know that Jonathan has chaired and helped to form the Air New Zealand Sustainability Committee, for example. Among many other things, Jonathan is a former director of Friends of the Earth and was co-chair of the UK Green Party. So it's no surprise that in 2000, Jonathan became Sir Jonathan when he received a CBE for Services to Environmental Protection. As chairman of the UK Sustainable Development Commission until 2009, he spent nine years advising government ministers. He's also an author. And today we're going to hear about his most recent book, Hope and Hell, published on 24th June 2020. And last but not least, I'm very honoured to call Jonathan a sustainability mentor and friend. And Preeti, Tena and I are very grateful for his support of our work on the Takarangi Indigenous Donor Economic Model. Welcome to Moonshot City, Jonathan. Thank you. Very good to join you. Jonathan, your new book is entitled Hope in Hell, A Decade to Confront the Climate Emergency, a critical issue of our time. In a recent tweet from Moonshot City, we quoted Christiana Figueres, UN's lead negotiator on the Paris Agreement, saying, and I quote, those 10 years we thought we had have now been shrunk into basically anywhere between three to 18 months. Because by the end of those 18 months, all of the decisions, and in fact, most of the allocations of the recovery packages will have been made. Jonathan, how much can we rely on these recovery packages to do what we need on climate? And how long do you think we really have to act? It is certainly a pretty critical 18 months, two years ahead of us, that's for sure. And Christiana is correct. We're going to see trillions of dollars deployed now to try and get our economies back on their feet. And it is literally the scale of it is running into trillions. We're not talking about billions, we're talking about trillions of dollars. Now, if those trillions of dollars simply take us back to our bad old gas-guzzling, carbon-intensive, conventional development approaches, then that's it. Then it's kind of gone. It's too late because what you then get is what is called chronic lock-in. You lock in your economy to those carbon intensive patterns 
for the next 10 years, whatever it might be. So we know that those trillions of dollars have to be deployed in such a way that they enable us to respond to the climate emergency, put our natural planet, our ecosystems back into something resembling good health and build just and compassionate economies for the future. So that's what Christiana is referring to. If governments press all of those buttons and they make the recovery that good from a climate biodiversity and justice point of view, then it will create the conditions for the next decade. I mean, from a climate point of view, we've got the decade to do what we need to do. We reckon, I mean, give or take. No one can be too precise about this, as I keep reminding people, we've never cooked a planet before, so this is all new, and it's easy to say we've got 10 years. It's not as precise as that, but it is certainly the critical period of time that we're going into right now, absolutely right now. So, Jonathan, why should climate change not be pigeonholed as an environmental issue? I mean, obviously, sustainability professionals among us, we all know that sustainability is a systems issue and climate is a systems issue. And it needs broader political action now. But what what is a case that you're making for it to be considered as a bigger issue in your book? There are two things about this. The problem about identifying climate change as an environmental issue goes right back to the 1980s when it was environmentalists who first started saying this is a really big deal and we're going to have to address it so all that tells you is that environmentalists were a bit ahead of the game okay but because that was where it came from everybody then started saying it's an environmental issue and you know what politicians are like i'm really sorry the last 40 years have had most politicians in most countries all over the world putting the environment in a little box all of its own which they don't treat seriously they've never really cared about it's never got them the votes that they think they need to get themselves into positions of power and therefore it's been a second order issue so that was a mistake especially as climate change cannot possibly be seen as anything other than a massive economic issue the absolute consequence of us abusing the environment and our climate is that our economies are now in fundamental disarray. We're seeing breakdown at every count, in every country, because of climate-induced disasters, because of collapsing ecosystems, all the sorts of things that we've seen emerge now. And let's face it, we're also now aware of the fact that the coronavirus crisis is a consequence of our abuse of the natural world in terms of continuing deforestation, us reaching out into those parts of the world which were once the places where the rest of living life used to survive and thrive. And now we've encroached into those areas with the consequence of zoonotic diseases now plaguing us for the foreseeable future. So our economies are already being massively affected by this. So we have to see climate change as in the first instance, a huge challenge to our conventional economic orthodoxies. And secondly, we have to see it in a much deeper way in that it actually threatens the very existence of humankind on this planet. It is that bigger thing. If we don't get it right, if we don't address runaway climate change, if we leave it too late, then we will see massive dislocation and the collapse of human societies all over the planet. Yes, it's one of these things that in sustainability, it's just awful being right about stuff and seeing these megatrends coming and disruption coming. And when it starts happening, it's kind of hideous. Do you have a response, Jonathan, for the disease of short-termism? 
Okay. So obviously for someone who joined the Green Party in 1974 and find myself still banging on about the same things I was banging on about in 1974, I clearly do not have any instant easy answer to political or economic short-termism. Um, otherwise, I would have been using it to a much greater effect than I've been able to do. It's, it is a really big issue. The reality is that politicians are now going to have to be mindful of future generations as well as this generation, for those who can't yet vote as well as those who can vote. There are only a couple of nations anywhere on the earth that have actually put that into their legislature. So Wales, for instance, here in the UK, has a wonderful thing enacted, an act of the Welsh Parliament called the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And what it means is that every time they have a new proposal, a new legislative proposal, whatever it might be, they have to take account of the interests of future generations as they make those decisions. Now, sometimes they do that well, sometimes they don't, but it is an incredibly important reminder to politicians in the here and now that every single decision they take will affect people in the future. And I would like to see governments the world over enact the equivalent of that kind of future generations concern so that our legislatures uh, democratic processes can reflect the interests of those generations as well as people in the here and now. We need something like that because otherwise politicians will always default to the thing that is causing them most pain at the moment, the thing that is most likely to win them votes at the next election, the thing that will secure favour with those in positions of power in business or the media. Short-termism is endemic in our systems and we absolutely have to find a way of countering it. I think you've raised a really important point here, especially in terms of, you know, when we look at well-being of future generation, that is such a non-partisan way of looking at things. And especially in, we are in election year in New Zealand, we are in election year in the US. So we've got to move away from the climate conversation being a partisan issue. And I love the way you've just, you know, brought this whole well-being of future generations. And if we look at that lens, then we can come together and that can be a non-partisan approach to how we, we actually take climate off the table as an election issue dividing voters. In fact, it needs to become an issue that actually brings all parties together. And I, I really struggle with that, especially during election year. So I think that's a really uh, yeah. good point. Yeah, no, it's, um, it, that non-partisan story is complicated, of course, mm -hmm. particularly in New Zealand, where one of the coalition parties New Zealand First is extremely sceptical about the importance of climate change and has actually made it much harder for this for the coalition um, in power at the moment to do what it should have been doing on climate change. You have a new act, which is great, and that will help a lot in terms of the future. But some of the measures that should have been taken over the last three years have fallen foul of, of a political persuasion that clearly doesn't think climate is as important as some of the other short-term interests. And we've seen that non-partisan stuff here in the UK. I mean, the UK doesn't really have any global leadership on climate change at the moment, okay? So I'm just parking that. But we, did, we once did. And we were the very first nation anywhere on earth to have our own Climate Change Act, which was a non-partisan agreement across all parties in Parliament. In fact, only two uh, MPs voted against it when it was passed. So we know that non-partisan approach can work. But since then, of course, partisan politics has made it harder to push forward with some of these things in the UK. 
than would have been the case otherwise. Most Tories are not, most Conservatives are not really that focused on climate change. They don't really consider it to be as critical as other issues. They don't see it in terms of a existential threat to the future of life on earth. Many of them are stuck deep in political and economic orthodoxies, neoliberal orthodoxies, which make it very hard for them to understand what governments should be doing. So we have unfortunately reverted to something much less about non-partisanship than was the case 10 years ago. We're not quite as bad as America, but we're not in a good place when it comes to non-partisan ways of taking this stuff forward. There's some really interesting um, developments as well in the legal system or some precedents around giving places legal rights as if they're citizens, right? And that's happened in New Zealand. And something that we're really looking to here is indigenous wisdom to help to steer the ship. Because with some of our iwi, our Maori tribes here, having this uh, thousand year strategy, it really puts this three-year political cycle into, you know, it pales in comparison. So that's something I think when we're thinking about regenerative societies and economies that we're really looking to, to help course correct, frankly. Yeah, and I think this is going to become more and more important. And actually, I think New Zealand has taken some incredibly bold steps here. My dad was born in Whanganui. So when New Zealand decided that it was the best thing to do with the Whanganui River was to make it a person in its own right, a legal entity in its own right. That was an absolutely world-beating, not quite a first, one or two South American countries had actually moved in the same direction just before that, but absolutely a, a, a defining moment as to how we need to recognize the precious relationships between us human beings and um, life on earth. And I think we will see more of, of that. I'm a very big supporter of a campaign called the Stop Ecocide campaign, which is seeking to give legal backing to all those governments and businesses and investors that continue to think it's okay just to go on destroying the natural world in order to make short-term profit. And we need to have this recognized as an international crime in the International Criminal Court so that we put an end to this permanent destruction and damage done to the natural world on which all our prospects depend. And the voice of indigenous people around the world is absolutely fundamental to that campaign, because they do bring thousands of years worth of wisdom and experience and knowledge and the kind of cohabitation with the places where they live, the co-creation of good lives, which make our civilizations look very dodgy indeed by comparison. So I think we can look to a significant change in tone, in the legal approach here, and I hope in the economics that underpins all of that. So Jonathan, our podcast and blog have focused on cities and we're exploring what would it take to build regenerative, resilient cities. And we've covered a wide range of topics, some clearly esoteric concepts and some really practical ways that we can deliver here and now. One thing that we've noticed is obviously with COVID-19, we've seen a rapid technological acceleration. You know, in many companies and countries have reported the digital transformation has um, accelerated by three to five years in some cases. How do you see sort of the opportunities to tackle climate for cities from a city's perspective? What might be some initiatives or opportunities that lie in plain sight that we can accelerate on 
similar to the technological transformation yeah. we've seen post-COVID? I think this is a pretty big one. I guess for quite a while, I've been pretty skeptical about the big IT companies that have blathered on about smart cities. And quite frankly, all they've been doing is promoting their own slightly dodgy software and ideas. And it, it hasn't really stacked up. But what you see now emerging and accelerated by COVID-19, as you say, is a realization that the future of cities is now going to be transformed over the course of the next four or five years. And that's because we have to not just decarbonize our transport systems, not just reduce our dependence on the internal combustion engine, petrol or diesel vehicles, but we have to move away from the pattern of personalized transport that we're still completely dependent on. It's not a bad thing that we move to electric vehicles. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm quite pleased about that and accelerated substitution, getting rid of the internal combustion engine, moving to electric vehicles is a good thing, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is livable cities where we've massively reduced the number of vehicles of any kind on our streets. And we have done that by prioritizing the interests of people using public transport and using cycling, walking, scooters, whatever other mechanism we have available to us. This is happening now all around the world. A lot of cities that have been closed down, city mayors have suddenly said, well, you know what, that was quite nice. We were able to breathe again. People um, don't want to go back to that congested hellhole of a place that they once had to live in. So we're going to try and now make these changes permanent, not temporary. And the reason why I mentioned that is that's all going to be IT enabled. That is a huge opportunity now for big data-driven smart systems to provide that level of integration and personalized service with transport as a service for individuals so they can mix and match what they need with public transport, car share schemes, opportunities to cycle and walk, whatever it might be. And it's as easy as that. You can, you can see in five to 10 years time, we will actually eliminate from city centers, the use of private cars. You could do that completely. And far-sighted governments could drive those changes through right now. All the technology is there to do that right now. So that, that is a big one for the world, a really big one. Absolutely, Jonathan. I think we're seeing that in Auckland already. You know, there's a whole transformation revitalization plan for the CBD. Um, and just this last week in the news, we're seeing these large companies who are, you know, who've leased large buildings and large office areas, actually moving out and realizing they don't need that space. And we've been covering those topics here on the podcast as well, in terms of how our city infrastructure has just been designed for this commute, you know, back and forth from work and, and home. And it's a real missed opportunity. And so we're seeing businesses actually look at that, you know, really hard and actually reach out to their employees to see what do they want to do. And over, I think, 90% of people have said, we want to mix. We want to come into the office sometimes. We want to be yeah. able to work from home. And we can. And we've demonstrated high levels of productivity during the lockdown and such. So it's a clear opportunity there. And to add to your point around all of the smart city and all of these sensors and, and gadgets and so on, is that, look, they haven't had a purpose. This is something that our friend and associate Debbie O'Byrne says a lot. When we talk about the potential for smart cities, 
it's almost like the smarts have been thrown at the city with no consideration of, you know, to what end. And the whole point is so that we have better lives and that we can lower our carbon and, you know, as, as we talk a lot about in the podcast, create more regenerative environments and live more in harmony with nature, etc. So now it's, it's great to see that there's a purpose being given to all of this, all of this flashy tech. We talk about adaptation, resilience, and regenerative cities. Do you see these as separate strategic pathways for cities to prioritize in this climate emergency? Should cities be focusing as much on adapting to climate change as well as mitigation efforts? Where is the sort of strategic look? How do governments, political parties, leaders prioritize this in your opinion? How might they look at this differently? I'm not sure we did ourselves any favors, you know, um, 10, 15 years ago when we divided up the climate story into mitigation on the one hand and adaptation on the other. So mitigation as in trying to ensure that we reduce the greenhouse gases we put into the atmosphere and adaptation, just accepting that we're going to have to live in a climate um, stricken world and needing to prioritize that. To be honest, it's a non-debate. I think it's a complete non-debate. I think we will be mitigating and adapting for the rest of our lives. And we will need to go on mitigating because we have to get to net zero emissions. And that is going to take a wee while, decades probably. And all of that, very sophisticated mitigation stories so that we can progressively, over, over the period of time, we can just get all those greenhouse gas emissions out of our economies. But we've already put enough warming into our climate systems to ensure that we will be affected by changed climate patterns. So we have to adapt. We can't just sit there and say, no, we're too busy mitigating. I'm really sorry. No, we're not going to be able to protect your homes and your streets and the places where you work and shop and all the rest. We can't do that because we're too busy mitigating. Or on the other hand, we're so busy mitigating that we can't do any adaptation. So you're just going to have to suck it up and get through all of these climate emergencies. Five typhoons a year? Well, look, you know, it could be worse. It could be six. This is a really stupid way of looking at it. Climate changes every single bit of our lives. So we have to commit to accelerated mitigation through decarbonization, through nature-based climate solutions and so on. And we have to get ready for a world in which the impacts of climate change will make a bigger and bigger difference to our lives. It's a, it has to be both and. And actually, I sometimes think the people who argue it's got to be one or the other are just using this as a bit of displacement mm -hmm. so they don't have to do anything about it. It makes me quite cross this, sorry. Also complacency and in, in some respects also um, you know, going to what they know best. So, you know, if I put my engineer hat on and if you're just looking at adaptation, it's this thinking that we can just over-design and we can, you know, create these, a very structural response to climate change, then actually look at a systemic response, which is harder, more complex. It's, it's open-ended. I wonder if there's a lot of that in play as well, that adaptation seems like, oh, we just need these barriers or we need to design our pipes for, you know, a massive 300-year uh, storms or whatever that might look like. But yeah, I'm wondering if there's a bit of that as well. If I understood it correctly, you're quite interested in the engineering side of this. So let's not take away from the fact that good on-the-ground 
engineering solutions can make a massive difference. And I'm not necessarily talking about pouring billions of tons of concrete. Actually, one of the most astonishing things that's been going on over the last 20 years is in Bangladesh, where Mm -hmm. through a combination of really incredibly sophisticated, often community-led measures, they have been able to put in place adaptation systems, Mm -hmm. to build resilience, early warning systems, better design of buildings, evacuation, et cetera, et cetera. And actually the impact of that in Bangladesh has been dramatic. It's saved millions of lives over the course of the last Mm. 20 years. Now, that's adaptation writ large, if you like, of the scale that Mm -hmm. in New Zealand and here in the UK, one would, a lot of people would find it difficult to imagine. So we do need all of these skills being deployed on the front line because it will make a massive difference. Mm. And I think it's too easy for people just to say that that's, you know, that's a kind of knee-jerk response to what's happening. Actually, Mm. we're going to need all of that and more over the next few years. Jonathan, just talking about, you know, you're talking about these community projects in Bangladesh, which is an incredibly resilient nation. What do you think the role is of citizens now? I suppose one of the interesting things, you're already in your sort of post-COVID period. We're, We're not in that at the moment here in the UK. We're just imagining what it'll be like to be in the kind of situation you're in in New Zealand. But one of the things that I see more and more reflected in the debate is what this has done for community cohesion and solidarity here in the UK. Uh, We have seen a massive upsurge in people working collaboratively together in their communities, um, which would never have happened otherwise. I'm sorry it's taken a utterly horrific disaster of this kind to make that happen. But we've seen that happen at the individual level with people realizing the degree to which they can be more supportive in their community, work better together to make good things happen. And as somebody said the other day, we do not need a pandemic, another pandemic, to be our better selves because we have learned what it means to be our better selves in our communities. And for me, that is going to have a big difference as we think about addressing the climate emergency because you have to make this work for people in their lives. It can't be something you just do to them here's a whole wonderful blueprint about getting out of the climate emergency and here's what you're going to do. That isn't going to work. People have to be able to make these solutions work for themselves. So two very quick examples. We know that the climate story is also a biodiversity story. And we are now seeing some phenomenal new ideas emerging here in the UK about how do we restore the natural environment at the local level. Just working on that community spirit to rebuild green, not just rebuild better, but rebuild green. And secondly, of course, we have appalling housing problems here in the UK. It's a big problem in New Zealand as well, housing quality. Um, But we have massive levels of fuel poverty with people living in inadequate housing and with all the consequential health impacts that that causes. Now, massive opportunity for us to use that community base to start reworking the local housing quality so that we could do this mass retrofit scheme that people have been talking about for 10, 15 years, but have never got around to doing. And the best way of doing that is to skill people up locally, to make it a combination of good building skills and techniques combined with local community 
activism. And that could have a dramatic effect on the quality of our lives here in the UK and, of course, in reducing greenhouse gas emissions very dramatically. And I think, Jonathan, um, actually, you've gone part way to answering our next question, which is, you're, of course, familiar with your friend Kate Rayworth's donut and, and the work that we've been doing here in New Zealand and how... Here we've got a, a now inverted donut with the environment at the heart, which we're calling the takarangi, which in a very simplistic sense means spiral. And look, for us, this, this idea of a spiral, which is not just a, a circle where you end, end up back at square one, but there's a kind of sense of evolution. It's quite a powerful analogy. And in the donut, in the takarangi, the environmental elements are based on the nine planetary boundaries of which climate is one. Now, do you think climate is the most important issue, given it's a systems issue? Do you think that we need to just be working on everything simultaneously? <laughs> um, well, just for answering that impossible question. Um, I love what... <laughs> I do love what you're doing with the with the donut um, out there. I mean, I, I I love Kate's work. She's she's a formidable contributor to the most progressive thinking about economics today. But I never quite bought into the donut, only because donuts for me are just a suspicious part of extremely unhealthy, uh, unsustainable diets. And actually, I love the idea of the spiral. And you will know that in nature, the spiral is the go-to design template. It's just the most beautiful thing to see how spiral-based organisms are just ubiquitous across the entire shape of nature. So I, I love that. Um, sorry, just a detour. But on the um, boundary conditions, as it were, climate, as you say, is one of the nine. It, it's a funny thing. It does actually need to be addressed differently. Because if you look at all the other boundary conditions, it is possible to envisage a situation in which nature would heal all the stupid things that we've done wrong. So one of them, for instance, is actually the buildup of nitrogen and phosphorus in the environment through intensive agriculture. And it's causing just dramatic, horrendous damage to our natural systems the world over, including hundreds of dead zones in the oceans and seas and so on. Now, that could heal itself. In time, if we just changed farming practice, those systems would come back into some kind of balance around nitrogen and phosphorus. With climate, it isn't like that, because with climate, there is a point at which we reach certain tipping points. And once we go beyond those tipping points, you can't turn it back. You can't say, oh, okay, that's a shame. Well, we'll do the following and then we'll be able to go back to something pre that tipping point. So for instance, very simple one, matters massively to people in New Zealand. There are lots of tipping points in Antarctica. And if we keep on putting this level of warming gases into the atmosphere, we could see tipping points around the melting of the uh, of the, uh, in Antarctica, particularly in Western Antarctica and Peninsular Antarctica, which will cause utterly devastating increases in sea levels. So climate is different because it doesn't have built into it reversibility unless we move very fast indeed. All the other system conditions, you can imagine reversing the damage 
that we've done. With climate, we have still got a chance to reverse the damage that we've done, but we will reach a point where that damage becomes irreversible, and then we're screwed. Genuinely, then we're screwed. So that's why it is a little bit different from the other boundary conditions, because if we bugger that boundary up, all the rest will fall anyway. Well, it's lucky that you've written a book then called A Hope in Hell, A Decade to Confront the Climate Emergency, which is a blueprint that, that we so desperately need. Yeah, I started writing Hope in Hell in the middle of the summer of 2019. Seems like a lost age now. And I did so because of this incredible upsurge of new energy from uh, young people in particular and from movements like Extinction Rebellion and so on. It just seemed that there was a a phenomenal opportunity now to move the climate debate into a different space. And we had to do it quickly because otherwise we might find ourselves in that too late zone. I don't believe it is too late to do what we need to do, but I'm very conscious that the science tells us that it's not going to be not too late for much longer. So for me, this was a real wake up call. It made it possible for me to revisit all the science and that is seriously worrying. There's no question about how disturbing the science is. And it made it possible for me to revisit the politics of climate change. And I suppose the key thing for me in this book is that I've ended up with the disturbing conclusion that our politicians are not going to do what they need to do unless they come under massive additional pressure. So I've talked in the book about the need for a different kind of politics, much more radical politics, um, including the use of very significant civil disobedience to force politicians to do what they're currently reluctant to do. And that's going to be hard. But honestly, without that, I think we could see this decade, this absolutely fundamental decade, just slip away with a lot more suboptimal, very modest, conservative, inadequate solutions to the problems, rather than doing what we absolutely need to do, which is treat it as the emergency that it is. And we've just learned what it takes to deal with an emergency from a pandemic. And we need to learn some of those lessons and address some of them to dealing with the climate emergency. So thank you so much, Jonathan, for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Visit us at projectmoonshot.city and on Twitter at moonshotcity to link to Jonathan's blog and learn more about his new book, A Hope in Hell, A Decade to Confront the Climate Emergency, which is published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Preeti Ambani. I'm Juhi Sharif. This is Moonshot City.